0: And welcome to Diddy and Hawthorne and the In Between, your place for everything reading and language related. I'm your host, Mackenzie Gentz, Now, bookmark that book and let's begin. Hello, hello and welcome to the show. Hallo und herzlich willkommen zu unserem Podcast. Today today we have what is for our team a highly anticipated episode because it is our first episode on the Brontë sisters, Charlotte, Emily and Anne. And I know the question is going to be, why Agnes Grey, why not Wuthering Heights, why not Jane Eyre, and my candid answer for you all is Agnes Grey is one of my favorite novels of all time. It has just as much snuff as the others that I mentioned, even though it's a quieter read and much less well-known, and it deserves its time in the limelight too. The Bronte Myth. First, we need to talk about Anne, because Agnes and Anne are often seen as one and the same, though, as I'm about to lay out for you, they are not. Anne Bronte was born in 1820, quote, the sixth and last child of Patrick and Maria Branwell Bronte, unquote. I'm quoting here from the Barnes & Noble Classics timeline of Agnes Grey, page 1x. If you don't know the story of the Bronte sisters, it's vital enough to the sisters' work that I've left some links in the show notes at relevanceofliterature.com notes for this episode for you to familiarize yourself beyond the details that we'll overview in this episode. In short order, Maria Branwell Bronte dies in 1821 of cancer, followed by the two eldest sisters of the Bronte family in 1825 who die of the family curse. The family curse for the Brontes, as it's often called, is consumption or tuberculosis. It was quite deadly for the family at the time. The three sisters, as well as their brother Branwell, who are the remaining children, are looked after by, quote, their stern Calvinist aunt, and all four are gifted, unquote, page XIII. Their father is a curate, a pastor, but has failed dreams of his own and is often a melancholy figure in the household. The girls had a highly imaginative childhood full of storytelling and writing. All three of them were said to have produced quite a quantity of these early imaginative tales in their childhood. As the story goes, it was Charlotte who, as the girls got older, discovered Emily's poems and some writings by Anne and pushed for them to get published. And they did, under the pseudonyms Kerr, Ellis, and Acton Bell. The sisters continued to publish as they continued writing. Later, for example, a three-part volume was published, the first two parts being Wuthering Heights by Emily Bronte, and the last part being Agnes Gray by Anne Bronte. In addition, after Emily and Agnes died, Charlotte lifted the veil of their pseudonyms to announce the real authorship of their various works. Regarding the ties between Anne Bronte and Agnes Grey, Agnes, like Anne, has a pastor as a father and comes from a very educated background. Like Anne, Agnes, too, is a career governess, highly devout, and takes a negative view of the nuclear family household, the main social system at that time. But Anne and Agnes are essentially different in a few respects. First, Anne was bold enough to steal away writing the wicked truth about the families and children under her charge while positioned as a governess. Agnes is recounting her narrative from the distant future when she knows everything turns out okay. Agnes also has a wonderful independent mother figure who serves both parental roles for a lot of the book because Agnes' father makes a bad gamble, loses their money, and becomes thereafter pretty much worthless. How similar Agnes's father is to Anne's, only Anne and her sisters would know. My personal theory is that there's some of Branwell in Agnes's father, his recklessness maybe, but regardless, having a mother figure of that caliber to look up to is a huge differentiating factor between the author and her character. And finally, and perhaps most crucially, Agnes gets married while Anne never does. Marriage and its significance is something we'll talk about later in the episode so hold on to your hats until then. Back to real life for a moment, Branwell and Emily Bronte both died in 1848 and Anne soon followed, dying of consumption in 1849 at Scarborough, a beloved seaside retreat of hers. Charlotte, having outlived all of her siblings and being the mainstay of her sister's bodies of work, had the power to shape the reception of those works as well as the memory of her two sisters. For example charlotte underwent a revision of weathering heights which resulted in the version that is on the shelves in publication today as an aside i talk more about that whole journey and that revision in our january patreon only podcast at patreon.com relevance of literature it's really fascinating Anne Charlotte could just as easily have taken the firebomb that was Anne's second novel and said, Oh no, my sister Anne? So quiet. So moral. You've got nothing to worry about. No pretense for scandal here. In other words, it is vital to understand that what we know of Anne Bronte today has been shaped, really curated, by individuals like Charlotte over the course of time. Anne has been painted as a quiet, morally upright, introverted person, and I'm sure that's not far from the truth. But I also want to point out that it took someone who was exceedingly brave and extraordinary to write novels trashing her current employers and exploring themes that literature at that time, and especially women at that time, were not allowed to pursue or even think about. Because of this rationale, I understand Anne Bronte's contributions to literature to be just as substantial as her sister's contributions, as well as the contribution of her contemporaries. Theme Now let's discuss theme in Anne Bronte's novels, which centers on the whole around biblical morality and around social criticism. Anne Bronte is the author of two books. Her first novel is Agnes Grey, of course, published in 1847, and her second novel is called The Tenant of Wildfell Hall, which was published in 1848. Her latter novel is one that I've only read about, not read, so I can't speak to it specifically other than to say that it rocked the Victorian world when it came out because it deals with the story of a young wife who falls in love with another man while she is still married. Scandal! Agnes Grey deals with morality on a number of levels, however, so let's start with the macro level. Children of pastors like Agnes and like Anne in the Victorian era were meant to recognize and understand any and all biblical illusion, which was commonplace in all levels of discourse at that time. Thus, Agnes demonstrates an incredible breadth of reference and understanding when it comes to biblical illusion. For me as a reader, the practice is interesting because it's like a time capsule of the common ground that speakers used to have in discourse back then. Think of it this way. The way that we talk about TikTok, from the way we reference it to the way we spend time with it, is the way that society at large used to talk about the Bible. On a more individual level, Agnes also comes from a denomination of Christianity that believes in strict moral and personal discipline, meaning that it asks followers to be constantly monitoring their own behavior as well as the behavior of others. This trait is something that's evident from the start of Agnes' first job as governess. Regarding social criticism, on the other hand, Agnes Gray takes the role of the governess, introduces it in an intimate way that really wasn't explored in literature before this, and says through the governess's perspective, look at what has happened to the nuclear family. Parents are loving their children to the point of their corruption. The governess comes in without proper authority to morally train and articulate the children and make them into the fit adults they deserve to be, and before you know it, those children are married and have children themselves. It's a systemic issue Anne's shedding light upon here, emphasized and re-emphasized especially through the character of Rosalie in the novel, who is the eldest girl at Agnes' second position as governess. I can only imagine what social criticisms lay at stake in The Tenant of Wildfell Hall, which is why it's high up on my reading list for the year. The Governess Novel Like so many Victorian-era novels, Agnes Grey is a Governess novel. That is, a novel that principally details the secret life of the Governess. Think novels like The Turn of the Screw by Henry James or like Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. The governess is a fascinating role in the 19th century as it developed into a station that was above household servants such as cooks and maids, but was still very much below the family itself, including the children who were to be called Miss and Master by their governess. Governesses were paid rather poorly, but were expected to be dignified and refined, including in their personal lives and in their manner of dress. They were well-educated enough to teach and to have achievement in areas like the arts, but they were not wholly from backgrounds distinguished enough to marry well and move up in social status. And the kicker, they were extremely unlikely to marry. Giving their lives to their employer's children, on the whole they did not have private lives or affordance enough in terms of a solid dowry to marry at all. Agnes is very much in this situation when she leaves for her first post as governess. Her family is poor but managing, meaning that while she's highly educated, which is in part due to the access her family had to materials provided by the church her father worked for, she has no dowry with which to marry. Marriage, in the denomination that Agnes practices, is a union that embodies the closest relationship one can have on earth, mimicking the relationship that one should have with God. It's a big deal when Agnes chooses independence and solitude as a governess in order to provide for her family over her future. Finally, let's talk about two parts of the novel by digging into the text. The suspense of Agnes' courtship with Mr. Weston and the novel's ending. Mr. Weston, excerpt from page 77. Quote, oh, such a beast. Weston, his name is. I can give you his description in three words. An insensate, ugly, stupid blockhead. That's four, but no matter enough of him now. Unquote. That was Rosalie talking about Mr. Weston. Excerpt from page 151 and 152. Mr. Weston and Agnes. He carried in his hand a cluster of beautiful bluebells, which he offered to me, observing with a smile that though he had seen so little of me for the last two months, he had not forgotten that bluebells were numbered among my favorite flowers. It was done as a simple act of goodwill, without compliment or remarkable courtesy, or any look that could be construed into reverential, tender adoration, vide Rosalie Murray. But still, it was something to find my unimportant saying so well remembered. It was something that he had noticed so accurately the time I had ceased to be visible. "'I was told,' said he, "'that you were a perfect bookworm, Miss Gray, "'so completely absorbed in your studies that you were lost to every other pleasure.' "'Yes, and it's quite true,' cried Matilda. "'No, Mr. Weston, don't believe it. It's a scandalous libel.' These young ladies are too fond of making random assertions at the expense of their friends, and you ought to be careful how to listen to them. I hope this assertion is groundless at any rate. Why, do you particularly object to ladies' study? No, but I object to anyone so devoting himself or herself to study as to lose sight of everything else. Except under peculiar circumstances, I consider very close and constant study as a waste of time and an injury to the mind as well as the body. Well, I have neither the time nor the inclination for such transgressions. We parted again. Well, what is there remarkable in all this? Why have I recorded it? Because, reader, it was important enough to give me a cheerful evening, a night of pleasant dreams, and a morning of felicitous hopes. What I find to be so well done about the courtship between Mr. Weston and Agnes Gray is how sly and subversive its development is throughout the novel. As you just heard from the excerpts, Mr. Weston is introduced to us as this plain, almost intolerable man, but as soon as Agnes sees him for herself, she realizes that While plain-looking, he has a tremendous gift in preaching, and he also has the abounding heart of a giver. His character is selfless, good, and upright, everything that Agnes seeks after in her own life and career and conscience. As mentioned in an earlier section of the episode, as a governess, Agnes does not get much alone time, and Rosalie, one of her charges, in fact goes out of her way to prevent Agnes from seeing Mr. Weston in a sick game that only a frivolous young girl such as Rosalie could enjoy. Their conversation in the second excerpt is when Agnes has finally gotten a few spare moments of respite amidst the game of business that Rosalie has laid out for her. But despite the circumstances, Agnes and Mr. Weston serve each other in fits and gasps throughout the time they're both stationed in the same general area. They run into each other on walks home after church, and they see each other at the home of Nancy, a poor woman in the area who often needs help with additional chores. And from those short glimpses with each other, they both gain lots of vital information about the other, and Agnes is consistently impressed with him. At the end of the novel, Agnes has gone home to her hometown to open a small school with her mother, meaning that she has left both her position as governess as well as any further opportunities to see Mr. Weston behind. But after a time, Agnes learns that Mr. Weston has been stationed quite close to her hometown out of another parish. She's walking along the beach one day, reunites with him, introduces him to her mother, and the rest is history. It's an atypical courtship, but one that is highly emblematic of the time period and stations of the two characters involved. Overall, it serves as a beautiful foil to the modern romance novel. The Ending And now I think I have said sufficient. Page 193 Can you imagine a quieter, more beautiful ending to such a distinctive novel? What I love about this ending is that coupled with a Jane Austen style that is an ending that covers lots of time very quickly and is not very detailed, ending the narrator tells us that she has decided to stop on the highest note she can think of and bring the tale to a close not with a bold ending but with eight words of the truth which is that she has just told enough of her story to finish it true to form even the narration itself practices moderation and contentment let's back up so that i can excerpt a few more paragraphs of the ending i'm reading from the last page of the novel page 193. Edward, that's Mr. Weston, by his strenuous exertions has worked surprising reforms in his parish and is esteemed and loved by its inhabitants as he deserves. For whatever his faults may be as a man, and no one is certainly without, I defy anybody to blame him as a pastor, husband, or a father. Our children, Edward, Agnes, and little Mary, promise well. Their education, for the time being, is chiefly committed to me and they shall want no good thing that a mother's care can give. Our modest income is amply sufficient for our requirements, and by practicing the economy we learned in harder times and never attempting to imitate our richer neighbors, we managed not only to enjoy comfort and contentment ourselves, but to have every year something to lay by for our children and something to give to those who need it. And now I think I have said sufficient. Unquote. To give you an idea of how much information is in these last few paragraphs right at the end, the page before page 192 is when Mr. Weston finally proposes to Agnes after a long and somewhat tedious courtship of him walking miles a day in all kinds of weather to see her. One of my favorite things about this book is that it ends pleasantly and honestly. It's a book that signals you to drop your shoulders and just smile at the end. I'm going to say it, Wuthering Heights doesn't have that. So I sincerely hope, dear bibliophile, that I have convinced you of Anne Bronte and of Agnes Gray. Thank you so much for your time and for your attention. I will see you next week.